Will you open your Bible with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, it's found on page 980 of the Pew Bible. And as you do, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, not only shape our character and our affections, but also our emotions. And we pray now that as we turn to your word that you would do just that, that you would continue the ongoing shaping of the people you want us to be through that power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it now in Jesus' name, amen. There is a supreme joy in this life that is above all others. Not all joy is equal. When a person is fixated on the thing or the person that is of greatest value and worth, and when they place their trust there, and when they engage their pursuits there, their affections grow on that person of greatest worth and value, and then, then a supreme joy is produced. When we pursue someone or something of lesser value, lesser joy is produced. And when we pursue someone or something of greater value, greater joy is produced. And when we pursue someone of supreme value, supreme joy is produced. This is the type of joy that holds up under the test of difficulty. When the immediate circumstances of your life seem as if they could only possibly produce despair, supreme joy shows its strength right then in the midst of our weakness. It shines like a bright light in the midst of darkness. And in the book of Philippians, Paul displays this type of supreme joy because he has pursued the person of supreme value and worth. He's pursued the Lord Jesus himself. And now he's in prison for serving him. The immediate circumstances of his life should only produce despair. But here... The strength of supreme joy is displayed for the Philippians and for all of us to see. And the ocean of this joy produces all kinds of wonderful tributaries. And those are displayed right here in Philippians chapter 1. So follow along as I read. Philippians 1, starting at verse 1 through 11. This is what it says. Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippi was a small city of about 10,000 people when Paul first visited it. It rested on this narrow plot of land guarding the Via Ignatia, which was the famous highway between Rome and the eastern part of the empire. Philippi was founded by the Greeks, but in 42 AD was conquered by the Romans, and as a result, it had the formal identity of Rome. The people dressed like Romans. They spoke Latin, but still in the city remained an underclass of Greek speakers and workers. Paul and Silas went to Philippi, and we see in Acts chapter 16, upon their arrival, they met a woman named Lydia who heard the gospel and was converted. And she and her whole household were baptized. After that, Paul and Silas engaged with someone who was possessed by a demon. And after casting out the demon, the city went into a bit of unrest. Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and they were thrown in jail. And while in the stocks, literally in prison, Acts 16.25 tells us of the types of circumstances that should only produce despair and yet supreme joy rose to the fore. It says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. This resulted in the jailer asking, what must I do to be saved? And they responded, believe in the Lord Jesus. And he was converted. And somewhere in there, before they left, a small church was formed in this small town. It's now years later. Paul is in prison again. And the church at Philippi had grown. They had supported the apostle who had founded them. What God was doing among them was amazing. And in Philippians chapter 1, you hear the warmth and the love that Paul has for this group of people. 
The level of warmth and affection that he communicates to them is not matched in other letters and other churches that he writes to. You might even imagine that this is his favorite church. (laughs) I imagine as some of you have read Philippians, it might be your favorite letter for that very reason. Just glance at it with me and listen to the expressions of affection. He writes in verse 1, to all of the saints in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. All of the people, not just the leaders, not just the lead servants, but to every person, regardless of class or race. And he says in verse three, I thank God in all of my remembrance of you. In verse seven, I hold you in my heart. In verse eight, I yearn for you. He cares about them. He loves them. This is not just a visiting preacher that stops in every now and again or a periodic visitor to the town. There is something deeper here that binds them to each other. And in verses 3 through 5, we begin to see what that is. Because Paul speaks about a unique type of partnership that they have. The thanksgiving and joyful prayer that he gives regularly to God on behalf of these Christians is fueled, as he says, by their partnership with him in the gospel. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you, making all my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And this partnership has many different elements to it. Paul had been traveling from place to place, preaching the gospel, establishing churches. He needed financial assistance and physical partners in this endeavor. More than that, now that he was in prison, in the ancient world, prison was not like prison is today where you get three square meals a day and have either heat or air conditioning if the conditions are unfavorable. In the ancient world, if nobody supported you in prison, you didn't eat. (laughs) And the Philippians showed up. They provided for him. When he could not provide for himself, their partnership was practical. But even more than that, their partnership represented something with a great depth to it. The word partnership here is the word koinonia in the Greek. It's the same word that you often hear translated fellowship. And this word can mean a close relationship involving mutual interests and sharing. But another way to describe it is a close relationship by having a common share in something. And I love that expression, a common share share something that they have received together, something they are invested in together, something in a certain sense they own together. And what was the share that they had in common? (laughs) What was the thing that produced this mutual investment and this mutual joy? Well, the answer, of course, is where we began. Their investment and pursuit of the one of supreme worth and value produced in them 
supreme joy. Their mutual pursuit of the Lord Jesus gives them joy in him, but that joy is not just one directional. That joy in him actually binds them together uniquely. So this is more than just the things that normally bind people together. If you think about the nature of relationships, you think mutual interest or close proximity are often the things that bind somebody together in a relationship. But what binds these Christians together with each other, what binds them within their church, and what binds them to Paul, even though he founded them nearly 20 years earlier, is the fact that they all share in the same thing the most significant reality of this world. The fact that the Lord Jesus is the King and the Savior, and as a result of their pursuit and investment in Him, they realize that their purpose and mission in life is the advancement of this good news that He gives. And they all play a part in that reality. And so what does that mean practically? That sounds really good from a distance, but what does it mean practically on the ground with regard to you and all these people around you? I imagine that it means for some of us that we might need to start looking at our relationships with other Christians in the church a little differently than we do right now. I'm sure that many of us have friends who served in the Vietnam War. I have a number of such friends, and I remember one of them describing how the guys in his unit went through terrible things together and through glorious victories together. And after the war, how they all went their separate ways. They spread across the country. They established families. They started careers. They had children, and then they had grandchildren. And then something happened. Two of them got in touch through Facebook. And they decided to have a reunion. And two turned into five, and five turned into 15, and 15 turned into 40. And it was amazing that despite decades of being apart, despite being in all types of different fields of industry, despite having vastly different experiences since their time in the service, these men connected and related to each other like no time had passed at all. They told stories. They laughed. They cried. They remembered their brothers who had died. They were together again. And despite time and distance, their strong bond had not been broken. Now, how could that happen? How could a bond that strong remain? How can a bond of brotherhood like that exist with such depth? Well, it happens, no surprise to you, because these men were engaged in some of the most serious things of life and death. 
And they were engaged in it together. They contended for each other. They grew together. They conquered together. They survived together. They had a unique and common share. You know, I think that everyone deep down inside wants that depth of relationship with other people. I think that deep down inside, people want that depth of connection and commitment to one another, that brotherhood or that sisterhood that lasts beyond circumstance or mutual interest. If you simply look at your spiritual life as an individual endeavor, you will never have that depth of brotherhood on a spiritual level. However, if you look at your spiritual life as pursuing the person of the greatest worth and value, the Lord Jesus himself, the perfect divine son of God, who gave the greatest of sacrifice in the greatest expression of love, if you look at pursuing him and the people around you are pursuing him above all else, pursuing that one of greatest worth. And if you pursue him together, and together you walk through the ups and downs of this life, and together you study his word, and together you engage in the most serious things of life and death, and together you commit to spending time with each other, and together you grow over the course of days and weeks and months and years, then together even in a large church, even then you will find a bond of brotherhood or sisterhood that will supersede the depths of bonds of any other kind in this world. And it will be rooted in infinite joy. That's why Paul uses the phrase referring to these Philippians, these ones he yearns for, brothers and sisters, nine times in just four short chapters. Because together, God has placed you and you and you and you and all of you in this time and in this place with all of these other people around you to grow in that pursuit of him together. And this is a partnership, he says, is from beginning to end. So what are some of the other dynamics of that bond that we share? Well, verses 6 through 8 tell us. What we receive through faith in Jesus Christ is described in individual terms and it has benefits for all of us together. He says in verse 7, you are all partakers of grace with me. <laughs> partakers of grace. He says in verse 11, you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6, he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you become a partaker of God's grace with all other Christians. God's grace, that favor that is bestowed to you even though you did nothing to earn it. God's grace, his favor that is resting upon you even though you don't deserve it. It comes in the form of the forgiveness of sins that he offers to you. It comes in the form of the righteousness that he bestows to you on behalf of his son. And it comes in the form of an eternal inheritance that you will receive. You've been positionally transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of son, of his son. You become co-heirs with the Lord Jesus. All of the gifts that God gives you to navigate the realities of life And these are all measures of his grace. And you get to partake of it. That's a cool expression. Partakers of grace. Because to partake of something is to consume it. It nourishes you and strengthens you. What do we celebrate together? We celebrate grace. What have we received from God together? We have received grace. What is the thing that continues to bind us together and promote this ongoing joy? It's grace. And it's important to know that there is a big difference between righteousness that is earned by works and righteousness that is given by grace. And perhaps we can illustrate it through a ride on a commuter train. If you've ever lived in a big city or in the suburbs of a big city, you know that many big cities have a commuter train or multiple trains that move from the outskirts into the center. And thousands upon thousands of people ride these trains every day. Imagine it with me. The train rumbles into the station and the warning bell clangs. I can hear it now. (laughs) The doors open and a uniformed conductor steps out and you climb on board and find your way to your seat. And when you look around the train car, you see tickets clipped to the top of the occupied seats, paid for with hard-earned money of those on the ride. Those tickets displayed at each seat are the special concern of the conductor who walks through the car to punch the tickets and confirm that you paid for the right to take this ride. If the conductor finds you without a ticket, there's one of two options. Either you are required to pay on the spot for the ride, or you will be promptly escorted off the train at the next stop. To ride this train, what matters is a paid ticket. This is righteousness by works. Righteousness by grace, on the other hand, works in a very different way. Imagine it with me. God's train pulls into the station and the warning bell clangs. The doors open. The conductor steps out and the masses of people crowd onto the train from the platform to find their seats. For most everyone wants to ride this train to the city where people never die. Eventually, the conductor walks through the train car to see if everyone who is there belongs on board. 
But on this train, the conductor's not looking for tickets clipped to the top of seats. And in fact, if anyone tries to pay for the right to be on this train, he will be escorted promptly from the train at the very next stop. That's right. No one can earn the right to be on this train. No one can pay their way to get a ticket for this train. What the conductor looks for as he walks through the car, seat by seat, is the penniless people who he knows by name, the people who are his friends and who are completely at a lack for the means to pay. These poverty-stricken people on board only have one hope. (laughs) They believe in the generosity of the conductor who is their friend. This is righteousness by grace. A ride on God's train is a gift. And by our standards, it seems counterintuitive. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We can't do anything to get on that train or to merit a spot. It seems unfair. It's scandalous. But like it or not, the way onto God's train is only surely by his grace. That grace produces a certain type of fruit in us. Paul calls it the fruit of righteousness in verse 11. Now notice the order. (laughs) The order is not good works produce in you the right to be with God. The order is the opposite of that, that the grace of God bestowed upon you produce certain types of good works in you. And so he says, you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And there's a theological reality here, isn't there? If you've received true grace from God, it will produce fruit in you. It will. And you can look at it in the reverse. If you've received true grace from God and you have no desire to do what is right, no desire to follow the Lord, no desire to act righteously with the other Christians around you, if you have no desire for those things, then you must ask the question if you've truly been a partaker of grace. But if you have, this is worth celebrating Because partaking in God's grace also gives us confidence. And this confidence, Paul tells us, is found in the fact that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That verse has been a great encouragement for many people, and it should be. That God begins something in you, and he will see it through all the way to the end. That's been a great source of personal confidence. God began a good work in me and he will complete it in me and I can trust in him that he loves me and will provide for me and care for me. And of course the work of salvation is individual in its nature and so that confidence isn't misplaced. But don't miss a broader application because in as much as God does that work in individuals, Paul writes to the entire church at Philippi that God has done that work in them. And that begs a question. Well, how could Paul talk about God doing this work in them as a corporate whole 
if they all just view themselves as individuals who happen to get together once a week to sing songs and hear a sermon? How could he talk about something that happens in them as a corporate whole if it's just a group of people who brush shoulders every now and again but have no genuine commitments to each other? He actually couldn't talk about them in that way, could he? But if they are a group of people who are bound together in their pursuit of the one who is the most value, the Lord Jesus, and they've partaken of grace together, the same grace that he gives, then all of a sudden, these people no longer are just bound together through some sort of vague spiritual interest, but they have a common share in him and a great joy and an ongoing commitment that God has started and will bring it to its completion on the day that Jesus returns. Now, the application here is wonderful. (laughs) It's wonderful for us. It's wonderful for you, and it's just as wonderful for us. That means that he continues to form a people here at Old North Church. It means that as he does this, partnership deepens. It means our relational joy expands. It means our confidence that he will use the people of this church that are bound together will continue to grow as his purpose is firm. This is the nature of growth. This is the nature of progress. This is the nature of moving forward. Think about the nature of growth with me for a minute. I have three children. They are very different than they were five years ago. A two-year-old boy five years ago is very different as a seven-year-old boy today. A four-year-old girl five years ago is very different than a nine-year-old girl today. A five-year-old girl is very different than a 10-year-old girl today. It's as if the good work of growing up is continuing to find its progression, moving toward completion. But you know, the same is true for Christians, maybe not in physical growth, but certainly in spiritual growth. A few months ago, I was asking a friend about how he was doing spiritually. And his response was something like this. He hesitantly said, I think I'm doing pretty well by God's grace. I mean, I used to struggle a lot in this particular sin, but now I don't struggle in that area as much. I mean, I'm far from perfect. I have a lot of growing to do, but I sin less in that area than I used to. Hmm. God began a good work in that person and is continuing to see it through toward completion. I regularly get to talk to people in the church about how their desires for their life are changing and how that once strong desire and somewhat healthy desire to succeed, to do well in your chosen profession was a dominant thought in their minds and in their action, but how that has slowly become replaced with a stronger and healthier desire and a prioritization which puts at the top to know God better and participate in his work even more 
and sharing this goodness with others and how that does not preclude continuing to do well in your career and the like. And so you hear of a growth group leader who leads his growth group one night of the week for Old North Church, but has Bible studies other times of the week because he has friends or family members that don't know the Lord Jesus or need to be encouraged in the scriptures that God gives and he orients his life around those types of things. Or, or one of the members of the church that comes and says, you know, I really want to read something in theology while I'm on my break at work because it will help me. Not because this person is particularly academic, but it's because they want to get to know God better. <laughs> or you think about the busy mother who is navigating the chaos of having young children and then somehow in there on a regular basis continues to make time to meet with another woman to share coffee with for the sake of mutual encouragement and sharing the gospel. Or you think of the retiree who makes an invitation to a former coworker to a concert because the gospel is going to be told there. Or the senior citizen who can drive to the pharmacy and help one who can't as a simple expression of a common share that they have in the Lord Jesus. It's like that God is beginning a good work in them and a good work of spiritual desire and then he continues to see it through toward its day of completion. Corporately, there's tons of application here, right? I think of a church, our church, with a profound sense of unity, a church that doesn't fight or squabble about stupid things, a group of people who continue to incrementally grow in their generosity to each other and for the sake of the gospel. And when you look numerically about what that generosity growth looks like, you say a church that is giving almost a million dollars more a year to gospel work than it was just seven years ago? That's amazing. I think of the growth and expression and care and concern and love and support for people who have need. We have one man in the church who's been going, undergoing a lot of physical difficulty and he says the other day, I don't know why all these people are sending me cards and calling me. I don't even know who they are. It's almost like God is begun a good work in you, all of you, and is continuing to bring it toward its completion and you, you understand the logic, right? I mean, my kids are not the same as they were five years ago. I'm not the same man I was five years ago. You're not the same Christian you were five years ago. Our church is not the same church that it was five years ago. God began a good work in you and he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus because the gospel uniquely binds Christians together in joy. The gospel uniquely binds Christians together in joy. And so this results in Paul bringing a prayer on behalf of these ones that he loves and he says this in verse nine. Look at it with me. It is my prayer 
that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Of all the things he could pray about for these people that he hasn't seen in a long time, these people that he loves, these people that are supporting him from a distance, while he's thinking about them in jail, the thing that he prays about is that their love would abound more. And that's characterized by knowledge and discernment. And it has a number of results. That they would approve what is excellent, that they would be pure, that they'd be filled with fruit of righteousness, that God would get glory and that they would be ready for the day of Jesus' return. Just consider briefly the component parts. That their love would abound. This is a choice, not a feeling, it's a choice to let love dominate their motives, their actions, and their interactions. How do you get to that choice? What characterizes that kind of love? He says two things, knowledge and discernment. Knowledge is a compound word that can be translated full knowledge. It means to understand the will of God and how it relates to our conduct. Hebrews 6 talks about this. He says, let us therefore move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Move toward maturity. That knowledge is met with discernment or insight. Insight denotes a moral understanding that guides our actions and our words for those who are wise. It's the, it's the ability to perceive the real the real nature of things. First Peter chapter 2, Peter writes about this. He says, Therefore rid yourselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So love abounds as we grow in knowledge and discernment or a particular type of love exists when knowledge and discernment or insight are there. Now let me take a step back and just rabbit trail a little bit. I am not naive to the fact that some people might categorize my preaching or even the ministries of Old North Church as heavily focused on knowledge and insight into what the Bible says. Sometimes that evaluation is meant as a compliment. <laughs> Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's meant with a negative critique and the point of that critique being that if we just focus on knowledge and insight, that means we probably are too academic or don't actually think about what this practically means for our lives today. Or maybe we lack passion because we focus in a detailed extent of what the word of God says. But here's the thing. Friends, I could tell you and your growth group leader could tell you and your Sunday school teachers could tell you what to do in life. 
I could give you five ways to be a better husband, five ways to be a better parent, five ways to be a better leader, five ways to be a better Christian, and so could a number of other people. And we could lace those things with lots of compelling jokes and inspiring stories. But we don't do it that way. Why? Because we want you to have the knowledge and the insight from God to inform these things. We want you not just to have fish, but to know how to fish. (laughs) We want you to be able to experience the depth of what God says so that it flourishes up within you. Why? Why do we want that? Because when you do, it produces love. (laughs) Knowledge and insight is immensely practical in this way. It unites your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nature of people. Friends, this is why it is so important that you never stop making yourself available to grow alongside of other Christians and to specifically grow in your understanding of who God is, what God does, and what God says. Because when you do you will love better. And when you do, you will experience a unique and supreme joy. Joy is what permeates this book of Philippians and it can permeate your life as a Christian as well. Some of you say I don't know about that. I'm a pretty cynical person and joy is not what people think about when they think of me. Or I'm a pretty crusty person and I might have inklings of joy on the inside but it's not going to be shown on this stone-cold face, or my life has a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, and the circumstances of my life are not the right circumstances to produce joy, or I don't even know if I want this joy. And if I do, I certainly don't want to go through the long and slow germinating process for it to take hold in me. But friends, the gospel uniquely binds Christians together by joy. And we're going to talk a lot about those things in the coming weeks in the book of Philippians. But as we close this morning, let me close by just reminding you of all of the ways that Paul talks about joy and its associated word to rejoice, which is the expression of joy. Just listen. As we look through the four chapters of Philippians and Paul says in verse four, making my prayer with joy. Or verse 18, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Or verse 25, I will continue with you all for your progress 
and joy in the faith. Or chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Or chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Or chapter 228, that you may rejoice. Or 229, receive him in the Lord with all joy. Or chapter 3, verse 1, finally, brothers, rejoice. Or chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. In chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. The gospel uniquely binds Christians together in joy. And you can have that joy in your life. Let's pray. Father, we want that joy. Some of us experience it regularly. For some of us, it feels as if it's fleeting. For some of us, it feels as such a distant opportunity or reality. God, today... Refocus our hearts and our minds in the Lord Jesus, the one of supreme value and worth. Help us to see and to know and to experience and to feel how investing and pursuing him indeed produces this joy in us. And may it be for our good and your glory. Amen.